Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about science fiction, science, and anything else we feel like. I'm Annalie Newitz. I'm the author of a recent book about archaeology called Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age. I'm Charlie Jane Anders. I'm the author of a brand new young adult space fantasy book called Victories Greater Than Death. And I'm also the author of an upcoming book called Never Say You Can't Survive, How to Get Through Hard Times by Making Up Stories. In this episode, we're going to be talking about something you might be experiencing right now. It's called historical amnesia, or the process by which your culture tries to cushion the blow of a major trauma by just forgetting it ever happened. We're going to talk about how storytelling is a major driver of historical amnesia in science fiction, but also in political rhetoric. And later in the episode, we're going to talk to Ayanna Thompson, a professor of English at ASU and the author of a new book called Blackface, which is about how modern-day people in the United States have forgotten the history of minstrelsy and why that's a problem. Let's start our memory engines. I mean, historical amnesia kind of sounds like a contradiction in terms because history is all about remembering stuff. So what is historical amnesia and and why is it a problem? And how the heck do we actually forget huge major events that affect, you know, millions of people? So let me start by giving an example. One of the really weird things that happened when we started to get deep into the COVID-19 pandemic was that people were looking back into history for precursors to it. And a lot of people were surprised to realize that just 100 years ago, we had a massive pandemic, which was called the Spanish flu, even though it actually started in Kansas. And it killed what is now estimated to be 50 million people around the world. And it was sort of a famously forgotten pandemic. And in the 1970s, a historian named Alfred Crosby published a book about it called America's Forgotten Pandemic because it had just been so quickly erased from history. And it's not really taught in schools. It's not really memorialized. And so for Crosby, the historian, he just wasn't really sure why people were forgetting it, but he thought that maybe it was trauma. Maybe people were just so upset by it that they didn't want to think about it anymore. I mean, trauma is so powerful. And like part of how you deal with trauma is just repressing, right? You're just like pushing everything down and just being like, I'm not going to think about that because it makes me really upset. And so I'm just going to like, la, 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 la. And like we did an episode recently about nostalgia a while back. And I feel like this is kind of a close cousin of nostalgia. Part of how we get to be nostalgic about the past is that we kind of bury the stuff that was really horrible and painful at the time. Yeah, we look back on it with rose-colored glasses, as it were. When there's so much evidence that something happened, when it affected people profoundly, how do you just forget it? What's the mechanism that makes people just, like, push something out of the collective consciousness? Yeah, so this is the thing that I think is really interesting about historical amnesia because it really is this collective process. And there's a really terrific lecture online by the historian Nancy Bristow, who has studied the history of the pandemic. And she gave this lecture a couple years ago at the National World War I Museum in Kansas City, where she talked about the fact that historical amnesia isn't like we all just 
forgot it, people did remember the Spanish flu in their personal lives. And she's really sifted through a lot of documents and memoirs from people at the time. And it was very common for people to say, this changed my life. You know, this pandemic, you know, absolutely altered the course of of my experiences. And at the same time, there was a very public act of forgetting it. So even as we remembered it privately, we were forgetting it in public. And that public forgetting was motivated entirely by politics. And the political historian Michael Rogan calls this a process of motivated forgetting. And just to give you an example, President Woodrow Wilson literally never mentioned the pandemic once. Not once. Imagine millions of people dying and your president doesn't ever even talk about it. I feel like one of these days I'm going to learn a, a positive fact about Woodrow Wilson and I'm just <laughs> be like, oh, that's delightful. He had a pet, like, skunk that he carried around on a leash or uh-huh. whatever. Or, yeah. you know, he, like, grew prize orchids. I don't know. There's got to be something good about Woodrow Wilson that I just haven't come across <laughs> yet. But I feel like I'm still waiting. I'm still waiting for there to be something not terrible about Woodrow Wilson. You know, maybe it's been a process of motivated forgetting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We've kind of experienced this in real time with some stuff that has happened, you know, like January 6th. People want to push that into the memory hole. But also, even while COVID was happening, even while we were in the middle of the COVID pandemic and people were just dying all around us, there was this process of, like, denial and pushing it down and pretending that it wasn't real. and like or pretending that it just wasn't as bad as it, as it really was turning out to be. Yeah. What else was, was happening to make people just, like, not talk about this huge major event in their lives? Like, was there something else going on? So remember, the Spanish flu takes place in 1918 and 1919. And, you know, it it has many waves just like COVID-19 did. And there was no overt censorship. uh, But of course, it is taking place during World War I. Right. Um, And so what happens, according to Nancy Bristow, the historian who looked through all of those memoirs and found all the people talking about how it affected their personal lives, but she finds that In public discourse, um, in the news media, what happens is that people start to think of the pandemic as being part of the war. Wow. It's basically like the World War I story absorbs the pandemic story. The pandemic becomes kind of like a lost subplot in this much bigger story about World War I. And here's a moment where Nancy Bristow talks about what that transition looked like. Wilson worried that attention to the pandemic would draw away from attention to the war. And so, in a sense, the pandemic was sold as one part of the war. You didn't fight the pandemic because it was making people sick, but because it was Kaiser Wilhelm's ally. And again and again and again, we see the conflation of the pandemic with the war. Doctors and nurses are heralded as soldiers, as brave as the people at the front. And deaths would often be described as deaths of martyrdom. And that's that the pandemic was just the wrong story for the United States at this historical moment. Now, the key phrase for me in this bit is when she says, the pandemic just wasn't the right story for the U.S. at that historical moment. Wow. And, you know, because this is all about public storytelling. What are the things that we're willing to say about ourselves in public as opposed to, you know, writing in a letter to our cousins? And... We wanted a story of triumphing over adversity, you know, beating back our enemies. And so the story of winning the war became kind of a story of beating back the flu, which, of course, we didn't want to talk about in the first place. 
you could almost say that the World War I narrative became entrenched in the public consciousness. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. It was low-hanging fruit. <laughs> but I mean, this is just— this But you of, know what? It was infected secretly by the story of the pandemic. Right. I mean, yes, definitely. <laughs> I think that, you know, this really gets to the heart of, like, what's so kind of troubling about this is that it's it's not just about, like, personal trauma or, like, oh, gosh, that's unpleasant. I don't want to think about it. It's about, like— national mythologizing and, like, us wanting to, like, feel awesome about our country in this way that's, like, super false and that is kind of, like, the root of, like, a lot of the problems that we're having now that we're just, like, we've been doing this for so long that now we we can't face the truth about ourselves in so many ways. Yeah, we want to always tell a good story about us being the good guys and winning. And so anything yeah. that contradicts that, even if it's something like a pandemic, which is a natural disaster, we want to use politics to co-opt that story and make it something that sounds good. And a lot of that national mythologizing does kind of tie in with science fiction because a lot of our most popular science fiction franchises are about kind of like propping up our mythos of ourselves as Americans, as, as Westerners. Sure. So, you know, how does science fiction feed into this process of historical amnesia? So let's just cut right to the Star Wars. All right. Let's just go what? right there. So the first Star Wars trilogy is a super great example, and that's partly because it started out as a commentary on real-life historical events, and then it kind of morphed into, I want to call it like a science fiction version of the American anthem. Right. Um, and there's a series of great books on the making of Star Wars by Jonathan Rintzler, and he talks in those books um, with George Lucas about, you know, what the inspiration was for the trilogy. And one of the things that Lucas says over and over is that he was explicitly trying to comment on the Vietnam War and that the Battle of Indor in Return of the Jedi was supposed to evoke some of the battles in Vietnam against the Viet Cong and that basically the Ewoks are the Viet Cong, straight up. And that was, you know, how he saw it. Lucas, in his early notes on the first film, describes the Empire as being like America 10 years from now. Rise, my friend. The Death Star will be completed on schedule. You've done well, Lord Vader. And now I sense you wish to continue your search for young Skywalker. So this is a story that started out very explicitly political, very much about the problem of American power, about, you know, the misuse of power. And also, it was a story about how the empire is beaten, right? So it's a story about if America is the empire, it's about how America loses, right? Mm -hmm. So this is not the story that we want to hear. If you polled, like, 20 people coming out of the original Star Wars, none of them would have thought, like, the first Star Wars movie in 1977, none of them would have thought it was, like, about Vietnam. And, of course, as everybody knows, George Lucas was originally going to direct Apocalypse Now, but, you know, because of studio foot-dragging and various other things, he ended up dropping that project, and it was directed by Francis Ford Coppola instead. And so he kind of directed Star Wars as, like, his version of Apocalypse Now. But... You watch those two movies side by side, you won't feel like they're kind of in the same zip code at all. And how did Star Wars lose that Vietnam War message? How did it become just like rah, 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 America, USA, number one? 
So remember how the historian Nancy Bristow talked about how the pandemic was described as if it were a war, and then suddenly the national conversation was entirely about the war? Mm-hmm. So what happened with Star Wars, I think, was kind of similar. You know, he's telling the story of Vietnam, but Lucas also mashes it up with these classic Golden Age science fiction tropes. But even more, he mashes it up with references to World War II and the Revolutionary War. And he even throws in the Indian Wars of the 19th century. He says that he named the Ewoks after the Miwok tribes, whose land the Lucas Ranch is on today in Northern California. And so he's really turned this into a film that is all about every war, and Mm -hmm. especially wars that happened in the United States or that involved the United States. And so it goes from being a clear criticism of U.S. involvement in Vietnam to being just a story about the American can-do attitude Mm -hmm. and how the little guy could beat the big guy the way the Americans beat the British— And also, and this is really important, the horrors of genocide are totally wiped away because there's this weird mishmash retelling of American history where the Ewoks win. So there's no need to grapple with, like, the ongoing horror of, like, white settler colonialism or the ravages of post-colonialism. It's just a happy story about how the good guys win the war. Yeah, and, you know, I don't think Star Wars would have been as popular as it was if it had been kind of more of a downer or more of a clear critique of the United States. And, of course, the Ewoks have all those, like, noble savage things attached to them. Like well, they're straight tropes. up based on Miwoks, of course, but then but I mean, also they're, they're also mashed trying, up with every— yeah, They with try the to Vietcong. cannibalize, like, the—they try to eat some of the main characters, and they, like— I know, that's they tie how people starts. to poles, like— bad feeling about this. What did he say? I'm rather embarrassed, General Solo, but it appears you are to be the main course at a banquet in my honor. Repio, tell them they must be set free. It's just, it's really, yeah. it's got some issues. It almost and feels they, they, like a like the night, the early 1930s King Kong. Yeah, um, it really does. You know. And it feels like part of what happened there is that George Lucas was just seduced by his influences. And he was like, I just want to do all the movies that I've loved as a kid, a lot of which were very jingoistic. At this point, it feels like if you criticize Star Wars, you're almost criticizing America. Like, it feels like Star Wars has become really politicized. Yeah, totally. I think that now when we argue over Star Wars, it hits such a deep nerve politically because of the fact that so many people see it as this triumphant narrative about how great America is. And it really it triggers people politically as well as like, you know, scratching their itch for a fun adventure story. Yeah. And so hit me, hit me with another one. Give me another one. <laughs> Totally. All right. So you can see a really similar form of historical amnesia happening in the steampunk genre. And remember, steampunk is sort of about reimagining the 19th century, but with more modern technologies. And often, especially in the past 10 or 15 years, this means retelling like really horrific stories of European imperialism in like Africa or Asia or the Americas as like a grand adventure where nobody gets hurt and it's mm-hmm. all just in good fun. 
the British Empire was just jolly and they had lovely outfits and they drank tea and ate crumpets. And, and it was they, just... you know, they went to to exotic foreign lands and kind of hung out with, you know, people in those exotic places and like ate weird food. But like there's no kind of occupying them or taking over their government or stealing their resources or murdering them in mass or just straight or putting, up genociding putting, them all. Putting all their culture into museums and then like, you Oh, yeah, know. stealing their culture, but also turning their culture into like, you know, pop culture for the consumption of Westerners. Or <laughs> but uh, I feel like the last 10 years or so, there's been this like move to really reclaim steampunk among BIPOC authors like, you know, Nisi Shal and like bunch of others. And we had Jamie Ga on the podcast, you know, about a year ago for our appropriation episode. And, and she talked a lot about steampunk and how she's part of a new movement that's trying to reshape the genre into something that's anti-colonialist. Yeah, I really recommend that folks go back and listen to that episode because Jamie's dissertation is all about steampunk. And so she has a lot of really in-depth and nuanced thinking um, about that. There was a really influential blog post about steampunk back in 2009 from a person named Eileen the Peacemaker, and she identifies as Asian. And I want to just read what she wrote because it was really influential for a lot of people who were thinking about steampunk. And she says, The steampunk movement romanticizes a time period where imperialist and racist attitudes prevailed, and many people were oppressed as a result of them. When Queen Victoria sat upon her throne, a lot of other Western powers were doing not nice things to people in Asia, in the Middle East, in Africa, and the Western U.S. And now, over a hundred years later, people want to live in that time period again, or at least use it as creative inspiration. So she says that, and then she talks about obviously why that's a problem. And she ends the essay with this amazing, like, call to arms to her fellow BIPOC writers and allies to explore things like the Boxer Rebellion or fighting the British Raj. And she says, I want to see techno-Aztecs or steampunk in Liberia or sitting bull with an arm cannon. Jamie Gaw took a ton of inspiration from this essay, but other people were, you know, thinking along the same lines. Belugun Tade is a game designer and an author who calls himself an Afro-retroist. And in 2012, he did this great interview with Maurice Broadus about the dawning of black steampunk. Oh, um, yeah. And awesome. they talked a lot about uh, Maurice Broadus's story, Pimp My Airship, um, which <laughs> became really popular. Since then, a lot of other African-American writers have kind of taken up this idea. Um, you mentioned Nisi Shaw. There's also Kay Tempest Bradford, who we've had on the podcast, and P. Jolly Clark, who we also had on the podcast, actually. But the point is that these are people who are trying to push back against historical amnesia by telling stories that really reflect the realities of life during imperialism. Yeah, and I really want to shout out uh, Nisi Shaw's novel, Everfair, which is just like, it's such a beautiful work of alternate history, which it's a nicer version of the of what really happened. It's a, a kind of a more hopeful version. But it by doing that, it kind of really throws into relief how terrible and how abusive the reality of colonialism really was. Yeah. And I think that, of course, steampunk is always alternate history. Yes. And so, you know, the question is, whose alternate history is it? And when you have European-inflected steampunk, oftentimes you see that kind of apologist view where it's like, oh, but the British were just dancing around having a nice time. Um, and when you see 
the alternate history that is centering the experiences of colonized people, suddenly you start to get really great stories about, like, amazing technologies coming out of Africa. Or P. Jolly Clark writes about incredible technologies coming out of the Caribbean. And suddenly that changes the whole geopolitics of the genre. But the key thing is it doesn't take away from the fun. And I think that there's a a kind of idea that if we remove historical amnesia, that somehow our pop culture won't be as fun because we have to deal with weighty stuff like colonials and like um, genocide and all that kind of thing. And it's like, you can still have an adventure where you acknowledge all of those difficult things. In fact, adventures work best when they're set in a difficult environment. Mm -hmm. And all of this stuff is kind of escapist and kind of fun. And like you said, steampunk is always alternate history. It's always got like an element of the counterfactual or whatever. And there is an element of like a little bit of wish fulfillment in it, but why not have wish fulfillment for everybody? And like now we're seeing new genres of kind of alternate history coming up. Like, you know, Ken Liu has coined the term silk punk, which Neon Young and a bunch of other writers are, are starting to fit into. Yes, I love silk punk. And that's another example of centering a non-European civilization in history and telling cool fantasy stories about it. These are stories that are incredibly fun, swashbuckling tales. But they don't pretend that imperialism didn't happen or that if it did happen, that it wasn't a violent process that killed people and left their civilization struggling to survive. The point is you can have an awesome fantasy that isn't historical amnesia. And I think another really great example of this is Lovecraft Country, which is a historical fantasy that might even educate viewers about the history of Jim Crow laws in the U.S. I mean, that scene where the main characters are being terrorized by this cop who's trying to arrest them for driving through a sundown town after dark. How far, Uncle George? We got two and a half kilometers to the county line. Can we make it? Wait, 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 wait. I'm sorry. We, we, it's, it's, it's three. We got to pass the train tracks. What time is it? It's uh, it's uh, seven seven o'clock. Can we make it in four minutes? We have to. He's speeding up. What's he doing? I don't know. That's the tracks. Atticus, watch your speed. How much time left? Thirty seconds. That's a pure thrill ride scene. It's incredibly scary, like white-knuckle adventure. But at the same time, it depends entirely on our understanding that these characters, because they're Black, are in this incredibly precarious position because this cop has the power to arrest them if they haven't crossed the county line by sundown. Man, that's such an amazing scene, and it's so harrowing, and it's just so intense. Yeah, and it's great historical fantasy that doesn't forget the realities of how history has been cruel to African Americans and how that's part of the actual magic of the story itself. All right, so after the break, we're going to talk to Ayanna Thompson about her book, Blackface. Hey, everybody. 
Doesn't it suck that so many stories about queer and trans folks aren't told by or for queer and trans people? Yeah, it pretty much does suck. And that's why we want to tell you about a podcast called Queersplaining. Each week, host Callie Wright shares a story that adds to the tapestry of queer and trans life. Sometimes they tell a story about their own life, such as taking meds for mental health for the first time or finding queer vocabulary for the Klingon language. Oh my God, I love that. Queer Klingons are us. Callie also shares other people's stories about things like using a D&D game to get ready for life after incarceration and about transitioning during a pandemic. If you want to hear queer stories being told by and for queer people, we think you'll love Queersplaining. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, Ayana. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You guys are amazing. Thank you so much. Since I have nothing to say about science fiction, I'm like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, don't worry, because in this episode, we're talking about historical amnesia. And Mm. Blackface, your new book, which is so fantastic, deals with this incredible forgetting that we've had really in Western culture about blackface and what it means. And I wondered if you could start by telling us about the history of blackface. In your book, you kind of take it all the way back to the Renaissance era. So could you just kind of give us a little taste of of that long 500-year history? Yeah, I'll try and give you the the potted version. But basically, since the at least the medieval period, but there might be earlier examples from ancient Greece and Rome, that there were characters who were non-white and were played by white actors in racial prosthetics. And the types of prosthetics ranged from fake wigs, noses, bitumen, which is a type of oil that could uh, darken one's skin. And we know in the medieval period, for example, that there were religious plays in which the fallen angels were depicted as becoming black once they fell. Oh, wow. And then once we jump slightly ahead into the Renaissance, we have lots of plays depicting characters who are Moorish or African or just something other than white. And again, they were played by white men in racial prosthetics. So while a lot of scholars who deal with um, American blackface tend to start in the 19th century, it is uh, hundreds of years older than that. Yeah, it's so interesting because one of the things that's so sticky about this issue that you deal with in your book is that it's not so much that We forget that there's this history of blackface, but it's a specific part of that history. Like, as you point out, there's plenty of white people who are still doing blackface on TV now. Um, (laughs) So no one's forgotten it, but we have forgotten something about it. So what is it that we're forgetting that's making it possible for white people to continue thinking that blackface is okay? Well, I think one of my central arguments is that playing Black characters seems to be a white property, right? Because Mm -hmm. if we think from Shakespeare's time on, all of these characters of color, including Othello and the Prince of Morocco in Merchant of Venice, these were played by white men, sometimes for comic effects, sometimes for a full-on tragedy. But that's a white property. If you jump ahead to the first 
performances that were done in the U.S. in the late 18th century, once again, we get lots of characters of color performed by white people. So there's this sense that, you know, people of color can't represent themselves and that this is something that gets to be a white property. And I think that's what's forgotten. That's where the historical amnesia comes in, because that's a really hard history to face head on. Yeah, it's really true. And one of the things you talk about in your book is that it's not a two-way street. It's not like there were people of color who put on white face and got away with it, right? And there's actually a great book by Marvin McAllister about the history of whiteface, but there's not a lot of examples. I mean, we have, there's like scattered throughout history, you'll get one or two every century, but it's also just not a regular thing. And I think, you know, White Chicks, for example, was like, oh we're, we're kind of low-key obsessed with that movie, so. It's me too. Oh my me God. Too. I could talk about that movie for hours. I feel like it's a really important, like disturbing, but really important moment in, in pop culture. Buffy the, Buffy the White Girl Slayer. Oh my God, yeah. It's, I can quote that film. But, oh my God. But even though, like, right, I think that's an incredibly smart film about why two black men in whiteface as white women is so absurdly funny, right? Because Mm -hmm. that kind of racial passing doesn't happen, right? And that's part of baked into the humor of that movie. So that's just not like what black people and other people of color don't have a long history of playing white characters. And so it is never reciprocal, Um, between, like, instances of blackface and instances of whiteface. So right now we're in the middle of this very unreal debate around critical race theory, in which a lot of people are misrepresenting what critical race theory is and how it's taught. And the kind of subtext of that, or not even the subtext, the text of that seems to be that we don't want to confront, you know, our past abuses and our past racism and exploitation of of African-American people specifically. How does like forgetting the history of blackface fit into that larger debate over, you know, what we're allowed to remember about, you know, our our racial Structural, (laughs) structural racism. Right. (laughs) Yeah, that was the phrase I was reaching for. Thank you. (laughs) I was like, it does exist whether or not you want to acknowledge it, right? Well, what's interesting for me in the current moment is that we have had these exact debates in the 1980s. Like, talk about historical amnesia. That's only 40 years ago. We've already been at this exact place where the conservatives in the 80s were saying, if you just ignore it, then there's no racism. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you talk about it, that makes you racist. And I think I've heard similar logic about critical race studies. Like, if you talk about it, that means you're disadvantaging white people somehow. Yeah, for Um, sure. (laughs) And it's divisive. It's It's encouraging divisiveness. Yeah. And I, I so I think like blackface in miniature represents the way that our society has such a hard time doing truth and reconciliation mm-hmm. around race and structural racism. So, I mean, I feel like you can dive into the history of blackface, how it happens, when it happens, why it keeps happening, why people keep saying it's offensive. Everyone's like, oh, right, it's offensive. We're done with that. And then it happens again and again and again. I think that exactly kind of shows in miniature the way that American society is not equipped yet to address structural racism and the history of the transatlantic slave trade. Yeah. 
One of the things that you talk about a lot in your book is this idea of white innocence, which I think is a direct result of historical amnesia. And I'm wondering, how do you think we get out of this feedback loop of like, okay, we're forgetting and now we're innocent and now we're forgetting. And it's it's just this constant vicious cycle. You know, I think Ibram Kendi did a great job in that book, um, How to Be an Mm Anti-Racist, to say it's not actually about you, an individual. It's about the way you work in this structure. But I don't think that message came across. I think that's the the issue at, at hand, is that if you can't address the structure at all, ever, if you're if people claim on the on the conservative end that addressing the structure of our American society is a racist endeavor, I don't know how we get out of it. Then we're just constantly in that feedback loop. But I want to say it's actually not about individuals. Like you're, you can be innocent in your heart and the structure's still bad. Okay. Although I feel like there's a lot of false innocence that goes into white innocence. You know, there might be people who are like innocent in their heart because they mean well, but then there's also kind of the innocence that's ignorance, right? It's Governor Ralph Northam of, of Virginia. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about amnesia. Nobody talks about that anymore. Well, because the Democrats don't want to. But right, I think this is where you have to say in his acknowledgement of being performing in blackface in the 80s, said, well, I did it because I loved Michael Jackson and I had practiced the moonwalk and I was really good at it. And I had one glove and then I realized that putting on too much shoe polish was impossible to get off. So I just put on a little bit of shoe polish. Like he went through all of this and, you know, the subtext was, and it's, I'm telling you all of this detail because I am innocent in my heart. And I didn't know how harmful this was. But that is just insane. How did you not know in the 1980s? It wasn't the 1580s that this was offensive. I mean, again, like, we're not talking ancient history here. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's even helpful just to, you know, teach history, right? Just to say, so you've heard of Jim Crow. Well, you know, that's that name comes from a minstrel show, right? Like it's not, you know, there's a direct connection between this horrific set of laws and the practice of blackface. You know, it's not. Yep. And T.D. Rice invented that name because he says that he was watching an enslaved man in a barn and the enslaved man's enslaver was named Crow. And so all of the enslaved had the last name Crow. And he called this older man Daddy Crow. And then then it uh, morphed into Jim Crow. So that's precise. I mean, we're talking the literal birth of modern-day blackface in the U.S. is tied to the phrase Jim Crow. Yeah, So how do we start to, like, educate people better and, like, spread more understanding of, like, the real history of some of these things that, you know, aren't just, like, a white person 20 years ago decided to put some shoe polish on and that was a brand new thing that they invented that was, you know, and they were just, they were just messing around, you know. How do you, how do we, how do we connect people to the, the larger history and how do we make people understand that there are deep roots to some of these things? Well, I mean, a first step is to think about how our American history is taught in our secondary schools. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's been changes over, over <laughs> since the 80s uh, that, you know, at least slavery and the transatlantic slave trade is mentioned. But I don't think the the ties between centuries 
um, have been thoroughly explored in that kind of curricula. I also think, you know, I mean, the point of me writing Blackface was that it's supposed to be a little short book that you can give to people if there's an instance of Blackface in your school or your community so that you're not responsible for having to take on the labor of teaching history to, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, in a two-minute conversation to your interlocutor, right? Um, So that you have, this is a resource for people that they can can give to their their community. I mean, I also think that there's, um, you know, there's lots of resources online. It's just whether or not we're ready to avail ourselves of the fullness of our history. I'm very proud to be an American. I love being an American. I love the privileges that I have gotten from being luckily born in this country. But that doesn't mean that I can't be critical of the way our country is structured. I think being proud means that you should be critical as well. Yeah, just to finish up, I wanted to know if there are any ways of using storytelling to kind of help people understand this history. I know there's been recently a move to try to, on television, to tell historical stories where we see BIPOC in history uh, in Europe instead of just having the, you know, the all-white London of, you know, 1600. Is there anything like that that you're excited about, like any historical stories that you feel like are finally starting to acknowledge that history? Yeah, I I think there is a lot going on. And I'm particularly interested in shows like Lovecraft Country, which is really trying to get you to some of this past history, but through a kind of science fiction lens. I think storytelling and television is probably the most powerful tool we have to grab young people for them to think about what our history is. That said, there's a lot of kind of colorblind casting still on television that I think does not do us any good um, and frequently kind of works to erase some of these structural problems um, that we still have. So I'm definitely on the record saying that I'm against colorblind casting and I'm for intentional or conscious casting. So are you subtweeting Bridgerton right now? I am. (laughs) (laughs) We were actually talking about Bridgerton the other day and like wondering like. Yeah, how, because it's sort of like Hamilton and Bridgerton and like a lot of these other things with ton at the end, I guess, where where you're seeing (laughs) this kind of, yeah, colorblind casting. And I've heard it called brownwashing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I, of course, I don't want to hate on any, you know, BIPOC artists who are who are finally getting a seat at the table to create some art. I would just would love it to be more intentional. Yeah. And more historically, more rooted in real history, basically. Yeah. 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 There's so many stories out there. So yeah. There are. Well, Ayana, thank you so much for joining us. Is there anywhere online that people can find more of your work? Oh, absolutely. You can find links to talks and my publications on ayanathompson.com. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye Have a now. great day. You. Take care. Uh, you too. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Our Opinions Are Correct. And you can find us on Twitter at OOACpod. You can find us on Patreon. And please do support us on Patreon at Our Opinions Are Correct on Patreon. Um, You can get some cool audio extras and essays and our thoughts about stuff. 
And we have an amazing producer who makes everything happen. Her name is Veronica Simonetti, and we're recording here at Women's Audio Mission. Our music comes from the amazing Chris Palmer. Superstar. Superstar. And we will talk to you in two weeks. Bye. Bye.